0: Some of you know or recall that Carol and I were in Bolivia for about four years where I was the pastor of the English-speaking church, the international church in La Paz, Bolivia. Uh, Just want to tell a little story about government bureaucracy, if I might. Uh, We had two phone lines at the church and the parsonage, and... um, the telephone company was owned and controlled by the government. The name of the of the company was Entel. And one day we received a letter from Intel saying that uh, back in the mid-1960s, you guys had purchased two phone lines. You paid for one, but you only paid for half of the other, which at the time was $115. Now, a phone line costs $1,500, and we expect you to pay the $1,385, and you should be glad that we're not charging you interest from 1965. So, we dug through our records, and this was amazing, That uh, uh, because treasurers in our church, because it was made of mostly expatriates, kind of were there for a year or two, you know, but We dug through our records and sure enough, as best we could figure out, we paid for one phone line and only half of the other phone line. I had a friend, this is what you do in Latin America, you need a friend. I had a friend who was an attorney who actually worked for an organization called the Rutherford Institute here in the US and his uncle was a vice president of Intel. So my friend and I went to visit the, president, the vice president of Intel, with the letter and explaining the situation. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, we can take care of this. It's not a problem. You know? So we were really happy about that. And then my friend, the attorney, nephew, got moved by the Rutherford Institute back to the United States. And then the vice president had told us he would write to us, send us the what the deal would be, how we could pay for this and all of that. Never heard from him. So I finally set up an appointment to go see him and I walk in and I said, you know, you recall that I visited here with your nephew and we worked out a plan of figuring this thing out. He goes, I don't know you. I have never met you before. What is this situation? And then he uh, proceeded to describe a, what would be an unacceptable uh, uh, resolution to the problem. <clears throat> uh, the point that I'm making in telling this story is that government bureaucracies can have a long memory in being able to keep a record of things, right? It's just a common thing. Uh, in the first service, I've just left the story hanging there which is what I commonly do with a lot of the stories that I tell, you're wondering, well, what happened? And the answer is, we never paid the bill and just expected them to turn the phone off. But because of their inefficiencies, they never turned the phone off. And so for all I know, they're still sitting there with a phone line that they only paid for half in 1965. I invite you to open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6, because we're encountering a similar story, a looking back of government records. And here's the big idea that you need to take away today. Governments are in God's hand. It's easy for us to forget. Governments are in God's hand. God's servants are in God's hand. That is that God is shaping and changing and working among His servants. And God's people are in His hand. Did you know God is at work in you? If you belong to Jesus, He is at work in shaping you and changing you. If this is true, governments are in God's hand. God's servants are in God's hand. God's people are in God's hand. The result should be—it is here in chapter six of Ezra. The result is joy. We got to come away from here today with a measure of joy over the fact that God rules and reigns and we can trust Him even when the intermediate circumstances can look bleak indeed. Ezra chapter 6 is where we are. Let me give you a little bit of a history or a little bit of lead-up to this in Ezra. Uh, in chapter 5, well, back up, uh, there was a ceasing of the rebuilding of the temple for about 10 years. Cyrus was king and he had given this edict to rebuild. And then about eight years later, he had said, uh, stop rebuilding. They kind of lost the records. And there was about 10 years where they didn't build. And then they started up again. And in chapter five, what happens is the governor of the province, the name of the province is Beyond the River, the governor, Tatani, says, Wait a minute, they're rebuilding. Is this really legitimate? Is it really right that they should be rebuilding? And so he writes a letter to Darius the king to say, Hey, I'm letting these people continue to rebuild, but I just want to make sure, is it right for them to be rebuilding or not? So that's chapter five. In chapter six, what we're going to see is Darius the king's response to Tatanai, the governor of beyond the rivers, question. Okay, are you all set? We've got a question out there. Should the temple be rebuilt or not? And Darius is going to give the answer to that question. Let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Ezra chapter 6. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ekbatana the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber, let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue. The tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house. And he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this, or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree, let it be done with all diligence. Then... According to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatani, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shathar and I and their associates, did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddu. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together, all of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful, and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Please have a seat. Governments are in God's hand. God's servants are in God's hand. God's people are in God's hand. Let's think for a moment about the importance of legal uprightness, the importance of legal uprightness. Tatanai, the governor, has asked the king, hey, is this right for them to be rebuilding this temple or not? Give me the word. And so a search is made in Babylonia. A search is made all over the realm at the house of archives where the documents are stored. Uh, by the way, that's an ancient version of the cloud, okay? Right? right? You've got to store documents somewhere. These days we do it in a cloud. Here... There's, a, there's an archive. Um, and the records are found, verse 2, in Ekbatana, a summer palace location. Cyrus spent his first summer as king of Persia there. So you remember it was in the first year of Cyrus that he, off, uh, that he made this decree that the temple at Jerusalem be rebuilt. And so what had happened was that there he is up at his summer palace at Ecbatana and he issues this decree for the temple at Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And I know you're wondering, well, where's the map? I mean, I got to find out where this Ecbatana is. I'm so glad you asked. The green square with the red circle—that's the—that's the Persian capital, Persepolis, and where the Persian kings normally were based and where they offered their, uh, uh, root, where they ruled their kingdom. We've talked about the great expanse of the Persian kingdom, 127 provinces. Uh, the about 450 miles to the west in the uh, purple. Uh, circle is Babylon. So you can see how far away it is from Babylon. And another 450 miles is from Babylon to Jerusalem off to the far left of the map in in blue. And then in that beautifully drawn square in blue up there, looks like a kindergartner did it, um, is, is Ekbatana, up in the Zagros Mountains. Okay, Up in the mountains is where there's this citadel where Cyrus spent his first summer as king. You wonder, now why did he go for the summer up into the mountains, and I wish I could take you to a summer in Iran, and you would know why. It's really hot. (laughs) And so, He goes up into his summer palace and up there he issues all these edicts and they actually store the archives of the things that are done up there. And so think about this. We're talking from 539 all the way down probably another 20, 25 years later. And they search the archives and they find this edict from Cyrus. There's a scroll with the record found. Now, this record, as it's given here, is different than de- the decree in Ezra chapter one. If you've been st- in our study in Ezra, you know that, the- that Cyrus gave an edict in chapter one that it be rebuilt, that the, the-, the temple be rebuilt. Why is there differences here? Well, the wording is different The language is different. In chapter one, it's in Hebrew. In chapter six, it's in Aramaic. But it's essentially saying the same thing. I'm Cyrus, king of Persia. I decree that the temple get rebuilt and that it be paid for out of the royal treasury of Persia. The reason for the difference, I think, is that chapter one was a proclamation that was made to the exiles so, that they knew that they were now allowed to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Whereas chapter six is an official government documentation of this edict. Okay, so chapter one is the, 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 the proclamation that was made to the exiles, chapter six is a recorded document of the truthfulness of the matter. This is very important. You might say, well, it doesn't seem so important to me. Well, it would be if you were one of these people. (laughs) It's very important considering that the Persians took their laws very seriously. The Persians worked really hard to be consistent and not make laws that contradicted one another. So that's why Tata and I asked the question, it's why Darius makes the big search, it's why they have an archive, it's why the records and the documents are preserved. Is because the Persians were really concerned that they be consistent. We see an illustration of that in Daniel chapter six, which happens just a little bit before this period of time. You remember the people go to Daniel, or Dan, to uh, uh, the king, uh, and they say, hey, don't make any decree, uh, uh, don't make any, um, let's make no one worship anything except you, O king, and anybody that, do- for a period of time, and anybody that doesn't do that, let them be thrown to the lions. And make it a law of the Medes of the Persians, which can't be altered. Daniel goes and prays, and then these guys come back to the king, and they say, hey, did you not make a decree? Uh, that nobody should offer any parapetition except to you, O king, for the next period of time? And he said, yes, it is a law of the Medes and the Persians which cannot be altered. See, that's that's an example of how seriously the Persians took their laws. So, verses 3 and 4. This is probably a part of a larger document, but a scribe has copied the Essential points here, rather than copying the whole document, taking the time to record the relevant portions for the matter in question. And what he said, what the record says is that the house of God in Jerusalem be rebuilt, and the size and construction of the temple, which by the way, is to be exactly like the first temple that Solomon built. If you compare the size here with 1 Kings 6.2 or 2 Chronicles 3.2, you would see that it's the same dimensions. In chapter 5, there were these worries about stones and timber. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. Tatanai is writing his question to Darius, and he says… Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, it's being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. Is this a good thing? And so, in verses 3 and 4, it says, 4, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. It's confirming that, nah, don't worry about the stones. That's part of this edict. Not only that, but the the cost, end of verse 4, is to be paid from the royal treasury The cost of the project, paid for by the Persian government. Verse 5, the vessels are to be returned. This deals with the, the importance of restoration. The stuff that the Babylonians stole, you're to take that and put it back with the Jews in Jerusalem at their temple. Now, some people suggest that restorations like this are impossible And indeed, there are many problems associated with this kind of restoration. Let me just give you a list of some of the problems. Time causes memory to die or to be selective. Getting to the truth of the matter is extremely hard. That's why it's so good that the Persians kept records. Secondly, the people affected directly are no longer alive. Why would you restore to people who didn't get taken from? The Jews have, the old people have died and there's new people who weren't even born when this happened. Why would you restore to them? Uh, Any attempt at restoration could cause further grievance rather than accepting the restorative act. It could be that by Offering to do this, the Jews in Jerusalem would say, well, yeah, if you're restoring that, then restore this too, and restore this too, and restore this too. That, that's a, a real, real possible problem. The people expected to do the restoring are not the people who did the crime of taking. The Babylonians took it. The Persians could easily have said, well, that wasn't us. The Babylonians did that. And here yet, the the Persian king is doing this restoring. Another reason that kind of keeps people back from restoring is what other groups are going to make demands? You know, if I let them, then I'm going to have a thousand other problems. Uh, another one is, isn't it enough that the Jews are doing just fine now? I mean, they're all over the empire. They're prospering. Uh, why Why? Even rock the boat by saying that they should go back and rebuild their temple. They're full fledged citizens of the Persian Empire. Uh, one of them, in just a few short years, is, is going to become queen, and a little bit later, one of them is going to serve as the kind of prime minister, the cupbearer to the king. And so there's lots of issues that make restorations really hard, and despite All of those things that I'm sure were debated within the halls of Persian government, Cyrus, in the first year of his reign, issues this decree, governments are in God's hand. We ought to take great comfort and even joy in that truth. Now, let's look at God's work in political conscience. Verses 6 and 7, the order is given to the local government officials. And I, lo- I love what it says here at the end of verse 6. So it's like this is Darius writing now. He's saying, Tatanai, Shathar, Bozonai, your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, here's the key words keep away kind of reminds me of the old Russian proverb, God bless the czar and keep him far from us, right? Keep away. Sometimes the best thing that a government can do is just stay out of the way. Notice the verse 7, let the work on this house of God alone, let it alone. By the way, that suggests that these local governing officials maybe were wanting to interfere Although they're letting the work continue while they're waiting for an answer mitigates against that. In any event, the government, uh, the governor is told that the to let the Jews alone, let them rebuild. Verses eight to ten, the king not only decrees to leave the Jews alone, he decrees that these elders, Joshua, Zerubbabel, and likely Zechariah and Haggai, are to be paid from the royal treasury. Do you see it? Verse seven, let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house on its site. Moreover, verse eight, I make a decree what you shall do for these elders for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue. They get paid from the tax receipts from the province beyond the river. Now, this is interesting because the king doesn't say Darius doesn't say, make sure that they get paid and I'm sending you money to pay for it. No, no, no. These poor local officials, they're going to go, guess what? Not only do they get to rebuild the temple, it has to come out of our treasury. The local provincial treasury is who pays for this. (laughs) So they probably looked at that with a little bit of sadness because their own budgets were being affected. Whatever is needed the king says. Sacrificial animals for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, other items that are part of the sacrificial system, verse 9, wheat, salt, wine, oil, whatever the priests require should be given day by day without fail. The king apparently understands how bureaucrats can use inefficiencies in government to drag their feet and cause red tape to hinder what they want to hinder while all the time protesting that they're doing their best? You know, governments don't ever do that, do they? Drag their feet in order to keep something going that they want to go while they know that they should be expediting something? And notice how the king says this. I I make a decree, verse 9, let that be given to them day by day without fail, without fail. The king's goal is twofold at the end of verse 10, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven. First, that the worship of the God of heaven be renewed in the way in which God ordained it in the books of Moses. And secondly, pray for the life of the king and his sons. The king has a goal. First, that pleasing sacrifices are made to the God of heaven, and secondly, that from that place, prayers for the life of the king and his sons would be offered. Notice that the elders of the Jews then receive government financial aid and protection without government red tape or interference. What a country. And then verses 11 and 12 there's a threat for failure to comply with the king. If the edict is altered, pull the beam out of the house. This beam is the supporting beam so that the house collapses and make it a place, when it says make it a dunghill, make it a place for the sewer of the city. Put the human waste there. And the reason for doing this so that the house is collapsed and it's made a complete dunghill is so that people would go, well, we're never going to rebuild that again. It causes a permanent alteration to the facts of the situation. And by the way, this idea of destroying homes in similar fashion by those who oppose the government is an idea that lives long in the Middle East. It continues to this day And what it is, is a way of erasing the whole ideology of a group of people by destroying what is most precious to them. You will see in days ahead, my prediction, uh, pictures of Israeli bulldozers bulldozing Palestinian homes. And there will be people who will intone what an horrible, awful thing that is. When in fact, it is a common Middle Eastern practice in order to stop a line, a continuing chronological line of people continuing to do evil. And that's what's going on here. Stop these people who would do this. The perpetrator, it says, anybody who does this is to be impaled on that beam of his house. Uh, what's interesting is the word impale could be translated a variety of ways. It literally says, be lifted up on it. Uh, I'm going to suggest that that may be a better translation. Uh, Herodotus, the Greek historian, says that this Darius crucified 3,000 people in Babylon. And this phrase, lifted up, may be something that Jesus employs in speaking of his own crucifixion. John chapter 3, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Or Jesus says in John 8, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, you'll know that I am. Or John 12, when I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Um, This is, in fact, perhaps uh, an early picture of the horror of such execution. Now, verse 12, may the God who caused his name to dwell there, just stop right there and marvel at this. Darius has read the book of Deuteronomy. You might say, wait a minute, how do we know that? How do we know that Darius has read the book of Deuteronomy? because of this phrase, may the God who caused His name to dwell there, caused His name to dwell at Jerusalem. You know why? Because in Deuteronomy, it says in a future, yet future thing, God is going to establish a place of worship and He will cause His name to dwell there at that temple in Jerusalem. It's predictive in Deuteronomy Darius reads Deuteronomy and sees that he is part of fulfilling a prophecy. You go, "Well, I'm not sure about that." Okay? This afternoon, go home and read Deuteronomy 12:11, Deuteronomy 14:23, Deuteronomy 16:2, 16, 16:11, 16, 16, oh, 16:6, 16, 16:11, 6, 16, Deuteronomy 26:2. This phrase Make his name to dwell is repeated all of those times in Deuteronomy. Isn't that amazing? Government is in God's hands. He says then in verse 12, let it be done with all diligence. That sounds like the legal language attached to any edict. The phrases keep away, let alone, paid in full and without delay, whatever is needed, day by day without fail, done with all diligence. These all show the remarkable grace of God in his working in the heart of Darius the Great. So now let's look at the joy of revival, work, and worship. Verse 13, the government does its job. They did with all diligence what Darius had ordered, Verses 14 and 15, the elders of the Jews did their job, and the temple is finished. Notice what it says in verse 14. They finished their building, and notice they understand the order of it. First, it's by decree of the God of Israel. They know who's in charge. God is the true king. And by decree of Cyrus, that was the Persian guy who made the initial proclamation, and by Darius, that was the next guy who's writing that letter that we saw in in verses 6 to 12, and by Artaxerxes, that's the guy who follows Darius, by the way, he's the guy who's Esther's husband. And the house was finished in the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Notice in verses 16 to 18, the people celebrate the dedication with joy, verse 16, with joy. I don't know if we can imagine how beautiful this was after decades of nothing and being carried off into captivity they are allowed back they are allowed to rebuild the temple in exact accordance with the way in which the first temple was rebuilt and they celebrate with joy the completion of this temple and they make these sacrifices now i don't know about you but whenever i read the numbers of animals sacrificed in the old testament do you just read them with great energy and like i got to memorize that verse Uh, i don't okay i just kind of go yeah number 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 you know ram bull, goat whatever right i just kind of let it slide by but let me compare this with you because the glory of the first temple and the glory of the, temp- of the people of Israel in Solomon's day is of a whole different category than this rebuilding. This rebuilding is a small thing by comparison. It's a small number of people. It's a small number of sacrifices. So here what we have is, what are the numbers? 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, 12 goats. Did you know that when Solomon dedicated the temple, 22 oxen, 22,000 oxen were sacrificed? 22,000? 120,000 sheep were sacrificed when Solomon dedicated the temple. Compare those numbers, 22,000, 120,000 to, what do we got? 100, 200, 400, 12? <laughs> Listen. Don't look down on fresh beginnings when they seem small, when they are small. This is a small beginning, but it's a miracle, and they did it with joy. And then, verses 19 to 22 the Passover. The Passover is celebrated. Imagine their first Passover, now back in the land at the rebuilt temple, a few months later. They do this purification in verse twenty, and then the lamb is slaughtered, and notice it's eaten by the people of Israel who'd returned from the exile. And then notice, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord their God, the Lord the God of Israel. Wait a minute people are welcomed into this that aren't Jews? Yes. You see, the commission for the church has always been go and tell, right? Go and tell. That's what we do. We gather together to worship and we go out into our world and we tell people about Jesus. In a few weeks, we're going to start up with our missions conference. We're wanting to go to the ends of the earth and tell them the joy of Jesus of Jesus Christ who was died and was buried and was raised from the dead. That wasn't Israel's great commission. Israel's commission was not go and tell. Israel's commission was come and see. And here they are back in the temple, celebrating the Passover, and the Lord says, hey, not only do you guys celebrate it, but anybody who's willing to forsake their gods and join in with you, they are welcome. Anybody who joined them and separated themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel, the come-and-see vision of Israel's mission is fulfilled. And notice that the covenant name of the Lord is invoked. That's that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D there in verse 21. That's the first time in this Aramaic section of Ezra that the Lord's name is used. And they keep, verse 22, this feast for seven days with joy. You notice in verse 16, they dedicate the house of God with joy. Now they celebrate Passover with joy. And the, why? Because the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. This is magnificent. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Last Wednesday, Pastor Jeff shared in our time as prayer for revival a text from Ezekiel 36, which actually is being fulfilled here in Ezra chapter 6. In Ezekiel 36, we read this, God speaking, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Fulfilled here. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You'll be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. That's what they were doing in verse 21. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The Lord made them joyful. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You will dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Then the nations that are left all around you will know that I am the Lord. The peoples around joined them, separating themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land. (laughs) I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. A fulfillment of Ezekiel 36. Now, anytime we see the Old Testament prophecies, what we should do is think about it a little bit like a telescope. You know how there's one cylinder, and then there's another cylinder, and then there's another cylinder, each successively bigger? What we should see is that there is a near fulfillment of Bible prophecy, and then there's further fulfillments of Bible prophecy, and then there's ultimate fulfillments of Bible prophecy. And here we have the near fulfillment God is doing something amazing in rebuilding the temple of God, using the, the heart of the king of Persia to accomplish it and a fulfillment. And then there is coming a yet in the future for these people in Ezra, but it's passed to us that there was going to come a time when God would send His Son to die on the cross for our sin, and He would send His Spirit to make us new and put a new heart in us. That's the second fulfillment. And there's yet to be a future fulfillment. Well, one day, Israel will receive her King, Jesus. Oh, man. This is amazing. This is a panorama of Bible history prophecy fulfillment, God has done it. Notice verse 22, the heart of the king of Assyria, God had turned the heart. Now, why is he using the phrase king of Assyria? The Assyrians were two empires before Persia. There were the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, and then the Persians. Why is he calling Darius the king of Assyria? The reason is that he's using an older name to be able to say that God has been up to something that were centuries in the making. Centuries in the making, God fulfills right here and right now. God had turned that king. God did it. We didn't. And the work we did after God did what He did with the aid of Darius is just An offering of sacrifice to the Lord. You see, worship is both a preface and a conclusion to our work. We begin with worship. We work. We conclude with worship. Our work, the work of Zerubbabel, the work of Jeshua, Haggai, Zechariah, that's not determinative. It's God's work that's determinative. Only God could have done this. Now, Jeshua, Zerubbabel, Haggai, Zechariah's work is meaningful But it is not determinative. It's meaningful only in as much as we see it as part of our worship. So, government is in God's hand. God's servants like Zerubbabel and Jeshua and Haggai and Zechariah are in God's hand. God's people are in God's hand. And did you even know that the people are on the outside that are longing to be part of it? They too, they too are in God's hand. This morning, as you think about your life, there may be things that are spinning out of control. You may go, I can't control this. I'm not in charge. Good conclusion. You're not. But there is one who is. And he works his perfect will in his perfect time, and you can Trust Him. Trust Him all the way to glory. So this morning, as we go to prayer, I want to share these words with you from a guy named William Cooper. William Cooper was a man who lived many, many years ago, hundreds of years ago. He suffered deeply from mental illness. In fact, this song is probably the last one he wrote And he lived for another decade or two after he wrote this song, but was so ill with his mental illness, he was unable to compose anything. That's what you call a difficult story, right? But understand that God is in every hard moment, and we can trust him. So let Cooper's words ring into your own heart this morning. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, I don't know about you, but there's times where I get afraid. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread, whatever that thing is that's weighing on you like a cloud, the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste." but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. In, in case you are feeling like you're right on the edge of saying, you know what, I'm packing it in. I don't believe that God's even in, at, at all involved in this thing, whatever it might be. You are here by the providence of God to hear this word, Trust your God. He controls governments. He controls his servants. He controls his people. And he is good and will work an amazing blessing that if we knew it now, we wouldn't be able to contain our joy. They kept the feast with joy for the Lord had made them joyful. Take joy this morning, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Oh God, we ask you right now to do your work of grace in us, to bring us to a place of joy when we are feeling weighted down or heavy with care or We wonder who's in control. Some of that is dealing with larger macro issues like governments and nations and the world in upheaval. Some of it is personal, whether it's marriages or families or people who are no longer walking with the Lord that we had trusted or the sin that easily grips us and we feel like we can't get a victory over it or... Things where relationships have broken down or someone has deceived us. Any of a thousand different things, Lord, can cause us to be jaundiced and skeptical. Lord, take away our skepticism and replace it with joy. A joy of a trust in you that you are up to something magnificent. And there is a great end for anyone who follows you. Bless that person who is without Jesus today has not put their faith and hope in him. Help them to see that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that he is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies and Old Testament texts, that he will reign, he will be king. And Lord, help us to bow our knee to him right now. In his name we pray, amen.